Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. The biggest lessons that I learned from running for parliament on both occasions were that um, uh, in my world, lots of people are interested in politics. And I think I learned that the vast majority of people genuinely aren't interested in it all. So that's kind of one one interesting reflection is, is how we make up our society. Um, I also learned a lot about the squeaky wheels that get attention and the groups that are enabled or activated and how they may not actually represent the issues that happen in the community. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our season sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. Our current sponsor is Tank with a C, and we're most grateful for their support. I'm a massive fan of Tank because they're pioneers in the world of government engagement. In fact, they might have even come up with a term or been the first to use it themselves. Tank are reimagining government relations to make it far more accessible and catered to the needs of the for-purpose sector. And today, I'm thrilled to welcome Tank's co-founder and director, Neil Farrow, to the podcast. Neil is an amazing bloke. He's an experienced political insider who has made his way in a range of fascinating spaces, including youth and LGBTI advocacy, twice fighting for the seat of Paran as a Labor candidate, and more recently, playing a role advocating for better climate policy, as well as supporting the rights of people with disabilities. This is all on top of running Tank, managing his farm homestead, and learning how to fly planes. There's plenty to learn from every conversation with Neil, and this was no exception. If you want to deep dive with me on some of the big ideas raised by Neil in this episode and any number of our other 300 episodes and guests to date, make sure you subscribe to The Hedgehog's Nest, my new Substack or email blog newsletter for the unaware, where I do just this. You'll receive a quality email that I spend a few hours each week crafting direct to your inbox on a Thursday morning. Just hit the link in our show notes to subscribe or head direct to hedgehogsnest.substack.com. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Neil as much as I did. And to learn more about Neil and Tank, just hit the links in our show notes or head direct to tank.com.au. Neil, fantastic to be with you this morning. Where do I find you? I'm actually up in Queensland at the moment. So I had a uh, weekend up here and staying on for a couple of extra days before heading back to Cold Kyneton on Wednesday this week. Fantastic. And I always think that's a funny way to start a podcast, but I do like to know where people are because, you know, recording remotely, we could just both about about be anywhere in the world. So fascinating to hear about your travels. So much to learn in this podcast about you and your uh, incredible journey. We can learn a bit more about Tank too in the midst of all that. Take us back a little bit and talk to me about your origins starting out of the space. Did you always want to be in politics? Did you always see yourself being in government engagement? What was young What was young Neil like? Young Neil like? Look, I think that's a really interesting question. So I jokingly introduced myself these days as a failed lawyer, a failed accountant and a failed politician, um, which are kind of the three professions that I've tried 
uh, originally or, or across my time. But no, life started out, I grew up, my mum's family's Italian and my dad's family's from New Zealand. Um, but both of them were public servants in Canberra. So perhaps I had um, politics and government and policy in my blood growing up in, in Canberra. Um, but no, I grew up in, in Canberra and, and studied uni, went to law and accounting at the ANU, went and did law and accounting at the ANU in Canberra. And then after that, fled to Melbourne and kind of floated around Melbourne since finishing my uni degree um, with a bit of time overseas. But for me, I suppose I started off life in marketing, so not even anything to do with either of my degrees and was just really interested around some of the relationship side of it, the the campaigns and the advocacy sides of it, and slowly got closer and closer to sort of government and political affairs and government engagement and public policy and, and then got roped into a few political activities. And the rest, they say, is history, really. That's uh, really interesting. I like the way you started that out, listing your multiple failures as to why you landed where you are. But also the parental intro, uh, influence is always interesting, isn't it? I think I think we always um, we all have interesting relationships with what our parents do in terms of how it shapes us, and then we all have um, interesting sort of reflective periods where we think, oh, the things that we tried uh, might have been failures and that we didn't progress with them. But where did, would we be where we are now without having gone down those roads? Well, I absolutely agree with you. Look, I don't think um, I would be anywhere close to what I'm doing or the projects and activities and and random things that I'm involved in had I not done all of those paths. So um, I do jokingly say they were three failed professions, but I think all of them have contributed to sort of the direction that we've got today. And and particularly so, as I said, my mum's family um, migrated from Italy after the war, so they had a very different view of sort of the world and work and education and and she was her first in her family not just to learn english but also to finish school and go to uni in australia so i think that does have a shape on your trajectory um and it's a fairly similar migrant story i think something like half of australians have at least one parent mm. born overseas so um a fairly similar story i think education first and trying things differently and and learning life skills along the way really and just figuring out like what works for you because i always um talk to people about being a failed lawyer as well. And like, that's one of the first things that I mentioned. And like, I was such a good failure that I failed and still decided to do a master's in human rights law where there are no jobs. So that, that that's that's failing really well, I think. That's like a solid attempt at failure. Oh, look, I think law is a really interesting degree. Um when I did it, and I did some weird subjects. So I did really, really well at contracts, which is slightly surreal. And then I was like, oh, I'm just going to go study international law of the seas. So I did like a whole, you know, year of study <laughs> on the international law of the seas and um, the Convention on the Rights of Wales and all these other weird things that I thought would be serving some purpose sometime in my life. Um, but I think I learned, I ended off doing most of them just because of an intellectual curiosity. And um, I think that's sort of one path that's continued through life, really. Yeah, I'd like to talk to you more as we move in through the podcast about why curiosity is important in helping us make our career and life decisions, because I think that's, for me, something that I'm only starting to figure out um, a bit later in my adult life as sort of a key beacon of um, opportunity and direction. But t- take me back a little bit and, um, you know, you, you talked about your, your various um, interests, the things that you attempted. What about work and when, when do you first start to enter the the political space or what, what your, your first couple of professional jobs, what did they look like for you? So, look, for, for my sins, my first full-time real job was as a junior marketing coordinator at the Australian Red Cross Blood Service, now Australian Red Cross Lifeblood, I think they call themselves. So they've changed their name in my time, and I, I did that for a number of years. And then I moved to a USIT services firm called EDS um, now, and then it was taken over by Hewlett-Packard. I think it's changed names three or four times since then, but worked in IT services marketing for a while. And then just sort of wanted to do something a bit more attuned 
to sort of public policy or public good outcomes and actually made the leap my first leap into the not-for-profit space um, and spent a number of years in a marketing comms fundraising partnerships development role um, for a small child welfare organisation and then jumped across to the Foundation for Young Australians where I was for a number of years. And I think working in child welfare and the Foundation for Young Australians definitely hones a lot of your political advocacy and campaigning interests um, and sort of parallel to that I joined the Labor Party. I, I, I joined the Labor Party, I think, when I was 19 or 20 um, and joined a union and then um, ran, had the opportunity to run as national co-convener of Rainbow Labor. So this was at the time where marriage equality had just been reversed effectively and there was a big groundswell of campaign of, of advocates keen to shift Labor and the Parliament's position around marriage equality, predominantly under Rudd, Gillard and Rudd when they were the Prime Ministers. And I was elected the national co-chair of Rainbow Labor which led to sort of five, six, seven years of campaigning on a whole heap of LGBTI issues um, as a side project to work. Uh, and then they started to get closer and closer together, sort of at the crescendo of the marriage equality stuff. There was an opportunity to run for a seat in Victoria's parliament, um, the seat of Pran. And so that was sort of my first opportunity at the time. I finished up at the FYA, at FYA and ran for parliament um, and that was sort of the first opportunity of work and life and hobbies kind of crescendoing together in, in 2014. Um, and then I lost that election by like 32 votes. So, you know, that was sort of the, the arc of history uh, through the, my first attempts at running at Parliament. That's um, an incredibly small margin to lose by, and, and it just it just doesn't tell you that just fractions are sometimes the difference between what people would call in a binary world success or failure. Um, but, you know, I, I wonder how you think about that. Uh, look, I think at the time I was quite devastated because I then kind of packed up my bags and fled to New York and East Africa for a year and, and sort of did interesting projects overseas for a year on the logic that that was as far away uh, from Victoria as I could get. Uh, so I spent a long period of time in Rwanda and Burundi and a long period of time in New York, both of which are multiple flights from Melbourne. Um, and so sort of for me initially at the time it was a not necessarily running away from myself, but just kind of trying something new and putting a bit of space between the election loss um, that I ran for and then um, started to meander after that. So I think, you know, at the time the loss was very disheartening and obviously with that close to margin, it kind of takes two or three weeks before you actually know the result, which is always a challenging time. And then after that, I was kind of like, well, actually it's it's sort of part of who I am now and, and you lean into it a lot more and share the stories, the high and the low, the good and the bad. Um, and in retrospect, I probably wouldn't have had it any other way. So, um, you know, losing an election is is a good thing in that sense. Um, and it's kind of driven my values and focus and sort of what I want to achieve since then, I think. And I suppose you would have learned so much from that experience. And I wonder many years later, whether you still sort of, I mean, the visceral response is definitely like for me would be exactly the same to go as far away as possible. But I'm sure now in your own narrative, it, it, it holds a completely different value for you. Uh, and and maybe, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean, I, I wonder whether you now see that as a failure or, or is it a really important juncture for you? No, I think um, losing the election was probably the first time round because I then went back four years later and lost it the second time as well. But no, I definitely think the first time round it was a really important juncture for me to sort of think of things differently. Um, and I was always a curious politician uh, or curious in my interest in politics, mainly because I haven't necessarily been a political lifer. So, I, you know, I didn't join Young Labor. I wasn't a political staffer. I'd never worked as an electorate officer and advisor. Um, and I'd always thought that politics was an avenue to change the world and make the world better. And so, you know, my interests weren't necessarily sitting on red or green leather, but genuinely to make a difference. And I think 
there's less and less politicians like that these days. A lot of them just see them as a career or an opportunity or a job. And and for me, it was always going to be a short period of time anyway. I wanted to make my make my difference and then and go back to sort of private and community and business life. But um, what I realised is through that, the skills that you can pick up along the way and the differences you can make. And the same aspirations about joining politics can be achieved in different ways. So, you know, I still get to change the world, still get to push boundaries, still get to hopefully leave a good legacy, um, but I'm now doing it outside of parliament as opposed to inside. And you've done some absolutely incredible things. And just going back to that journey, what catalyzed it? I mean, I think FYA must be the biggest hotbed of uh, social and political youth activism um, in the country. The amount of inspiring people I've met along the journey who started out there um, under the tutelage uh, very much of Jano and has been a former podcast guest and big inspiration in our sector. What was it sort of like being involved in the FYA space? And um, have you sort of seen a lot of people who you were with around that time or in the organisation go on to similarly do uh, things that are either socially or culturally or politically impactful? I think um, I think there's a lot of interesting people that came in and around FYA, uh, particularly in the period that I was there pre-2014, who've gone on to some really interesting things. Um, I still stay in touch with quite a few of them. Um, you know, there's a, a girl who I got to to meet um, through FYA. Her name's April Long, and, and she's CEO of Smart Recovery, doing amazing stuff in that space. Um, there's lots of people I met sort of in the Northern Territory and doing First Nations work up there who are doing some really interesting stuff. Some of them are now MLAs in, in the Northern Territory Parliament as well. So they've kind of percolated along in that space. Um, and I just think it was a really interesting opportunity for people to be given a long leash to go and experiment and do different things. And um, I think a lot of people through Young Social Pioneers as well, one of the FYA programs has gone on to do really interesting stuff in technology and disability and health and advocacy. And and I suppose for me, my lesson of that is I was never particularly um, content focused to a specific area. I was always more interested in the social space, whether it be education, health, and what all of those areas can do combined. So whereas I know some people in FYA went very deep into certain areas, I think I was a bit more of a generalist and, and my role at FYA as Director of Partnerships covered sort of fundraising, marketing, government affairs. Um, so it was a diverse portfolio while I was there as well. But no, really interesting time. And obviously running for parliament sort of midway through that was also an interesting time. Having to leave FYA, a job that I, I really enjoyed was also a challenge, but obviously I wanted to give it my all running for parliament. And so that was the next step along along that trajectory. And imagine you would have learned a huge amount of things from being in the the race to, to get the seat, uh, you know, once or twice. And then, you know, what what are the sort of the main things that you've taken away from that about, you know, whether it's building coalitions, the corridors of power, the process of, um, you know, uh, building momentum for change, campaigning, uh, just be really curious about the things that stood um, to you as the, the big learnings from that period. So I think the biggest lessons that I learned from running for parliament on both occasions were that um, uh, in my world, lots of people are interested in politics. And I think I learned that the vast majority of people genuinely aren't interested in it all. So that's kind of one one interesting reflection is, is how we make up our society. Um, I also learned a lot about the squeaky wheels that get attention and the groups that are enabled or activated and how they may not actually represent the issues that happen in the community. Um, I think running for parliament on a couple of occasions hardened my um, uh, hardened my disbelief and, and my scepticism towards professional lobbyists, uh, probably leading to in part towards why we established Tank and sort of the way we do it and, and why we do it as the way it is. 
and largely seeing a lot of very powerful vested interests with a lot of money shifting the dial in outcomes that I don't actually think were good for Australia. So I think a lot of the lessons um, were around, you know, nobody likes to see what happens inside the sausage making process, but I think a lot of those lessons were reflected in that. And um, it's also strengthened my belief in, around some of the importance of some of the institutions of democracy, um, which are increasingly challenged from all sorts of sides and, and how, you know, we have to hold those front and centre uh, or else we're all at a disadvantage. What were the major flaws that you saw in terms of how lobbying and government engagement was done that were, were kind of the pivotal um, drivers of you forming Tank? So I think the biggest one was those with deeper pockets got better outcomes and those with the deepest pockets don't necessarily represent the interests of the broader community is, is kind of the vex of that. I think that was one big thing, you know, as lobbying in Australia becomes a multi-billion dollar industry and donations to political parties become multi-billion dollar industries, you kind of see the trajectory of the US and you're like, I'm not quite sure I want to go there um, for a country that I was born in and that I call home and that I've ran for parliament in. So I think one of them was sort of the direction of money in politics and and concerns in that regard. I think the the flip side of that was not enough not-for-profit and social purpose organisations having access to political decision makers, or assuming that facts and evidence alone is enough to shift the dial. Um, unfortunately, we do live in a bit of a post-truth era in a lot of circumstances, and that the narrative is important as the facts and the evidence. Um, and the third thing I saw was just a huge amount of conflicts across lobbying firms. Um, you know, we're hearing it now coming out around the big four consulting firms and then working both sides of the ledger and all these other bits and pieces. Most lobbying firms do that as well. You know, you see lobbying firms who represent a community housing provider on one side and a property developer on the other. And you're like, I'm not sure you can represent both sides of that coin in in an ethical kind of way. So they were sort of probably the top three, um, the power of politics and money, sort of the conflicted way that um, lobbyists are sort of evolving and, and, and just how deep and entrenched the outcomes are um, if people with money control politics effectively. Is there a better time? Could there have been a better time to tell the tank approach to government engagement and everything you just said in the midst of what we're seeing with the big four and the uh, the scandals going on there? Look, I think it, I think it's a really interesting one. You know, um, what is will the scandals from the consulting space enter the lobbying fear field as well? I have an inclination that that lobbying will be the next big field that's dived into. You know, the nexus between staffers going in and out of, of firms, the nexus between, you know, guns for hire and, and networks and stuff like that. Um, you know, I do think there is a lot of interest and, in, in, you know, transparency um, is probably the best medicine in that space or sunlight's the best medicine. So mm. I, I think there will be more interest in this area. Um, most of the big four lobbying uh, big four accounting firms also have effectively lobbying divisions or corporate affairs divisions within them as well. So they've been entangled in this space for quite a while. And so you, you've kind of got this curiosity where you have like a big four firm that's advising the government on one side, advising private interests on the other, and lobbying for the difference in between. And you're like, I'm, mm. I'm not quite sure this is how this is meant to work. Um, and that could potentially highlight some of the disastrous outcomes we've had um, politically over the past mm. sort of decade or so. And you sort of think about it, I mean, even both our legal training, the idea of um, conflict management, Chinese balls and all these sorts of things and the flow of information. And it just seems, you know, even if you looked at, I don't know if you saw the four corners recently on the proximity of the, the big four to the, the key chambers in parliament and with all the, the lobbyists and whatnot as well, just the um, 
it, it seems that it, it it was almost impossible um, for for the people uh, in power to uh, understand the or to keep those barriers in place as to what information passed where and where, where there is so much money and private interests at play. It's a really fraught space that sort of lends itself to um, potential dangerous conflict, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it lends itself to dangerous conflict. And then the other side of the equation that I found exceptionally interesting through all of this is um, just how little regulations there are over the, the consulting world. So, you know, you and I both studied to be lawyers. There's probably lots of, you know, ex-lawyers or failed lawyers, however you want to describe yourself, floating around the space. But I remember even um, even lawyers who are much better at maintaining sort of um, walls between business icons. I think one of the most interesting things there is all lawyers are effectively um, officers of the court. And so their obligation, or they do have a higher obligation to the court and the justice system. And if they breach that obligation, they can be stripped of their profession as can doctors through, you know, the medical profession, as can, you know, physiotherapists through their mm. professional association. All these other groups have some form of, you know, doctors, it's the Hippocratic Oath, lawyers pledge a, a, an allegiance or an agreement to be an officer of the court, um, whereas the entire consulting profession, there's none of those values that are baked in and none of those regulators who can who can inform and advise. So, you know, if, if a lawyer and a law firm is working both sides of the case in the same firm, they've got a much higher regulator to answer for. I.e., if they stuff up, they both lose their licence and they can't practise. None of that exists in the consulting world. And by the way, none of that exists in the lobbying world either. It's uh, it's amazing. You know, I think that um, a, a good way to always think about how these things are going to flow is uh, what's on Four Corners uh, Twitter account and what, what are they going to cover next? So I think they've done they've done the big four. Uh, so I imagine that it, it's a short skip and a jump before they do other interesting spaces too. Um, so you, you learn, you talked about some of the big takeaways um, that, that you learned from your time, um, you know, running. And so how do you bring that towards, how does that lead to you and Angus starting tank? Because we've heard Angus's side of the story, which is fascinating, and I always think it's interesting to hear, you know, your take on on how that formed and how you, how you got together. So I think Angus and I had met um, mutually through politics. We'd both both been involved through Rainbow Labor, uh, him up in Queensland, and I'd been involved obviously in Victoria and and some of the national works. And and you kind of stay in touch with people that you have a sort of a curiosity or an interest or an alignment or or a values kind of alignment as and. Um, and so Angus and I had kind of dabbled and stayed in touch. And, and I'd been running little random side projects on the side of my work life for most of my life, like just kind of randomly jumping into boards or helping people out or working in various not-for-profits to help them do something, um, sometimes paid, very often unpaid, just sort of as an interest uh, and a curiosity. And I think the mindset was, okay, can there be something more to this and can it be more sustainable can we do something different together? Um, what's the opportunity and and how can we make it work? And I think that sort of led to Angus and I sort of thinking what's next and and what's the value and and where do we want to fit? And and I think sort of the long, the, the short version of that long story is is now um we've got tank and we've got staff across Adelaide, Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, although I'm out in Kyneton. So you know that's partially Melbourne, a little bit out of Melbourne. Um, and really working on helping not-for-profit and social purpose organizations, organizations doing good stuff to advocate campaign for policy, regulatory, or funding without needing a lobbyist effectively. So helping them get better at their own advocacy and campaigning. Um, and I think we are still the only organisation doing that. There's plenty of lobbyists in Australia and there's there's sort of plenty of people in-house 
working in government affairs and government relations, we haven't yet found another organisation that works with people to try and get them to be their own better lobbyists. Mm. Um, social purpose tinge and and uh, it's always challenging opening up a new space because people might think they need something from government and their automatically response is okay we'll go to a lobbyist or we'll you know we'll hire somebody in and and sort of straddling that middle divide and creating a new space is quite a challenge um, but one that we've really enjoyed because we get to work with really interesting organizations doing really cool things uh, and help them with their journey really yeah, Neil, I'm going to uh, use a quote that I use constantly, especially in this context. And um, it's a P- Peter Thiel quote that I love. And he says, competition is for losers. So you create your own yeah. category and you dominate it. And I think that's really interesting because, um, you know, for so long, uh, it, it's sort of like in, in marketing and comms where, you know, um, groups will come with to you internally or externally and say, oh, I just need a social media post or a social media account. I need you to activate my Twitter or my LinkedIn. But what they really need is maybe a marketing strategy or a, an engagement strategy. And I think, um, you know, what, what I find quite different about Tank is you've sort of seen that there is lobbying, there's external affairs, there, there's government relations, but the idea of government engagement and actually working with people in for-purpose organisations to take them and their issues and concerns um, in an active strategic way to the powers that be is really novel, but also quite intuitive and interesting. And I think, um, look, you you should always take credit when your competition and people playing in your field start to use your terminology. But I think we were the first to actually refer to the term government engagement. So lots of organisations spoke about government campaigning, lobbying, advocacy, but actually connecting the two together and, and framing the idea that government engagement is a thing um, and done with the view of the not-for-profit and the social purpose sector in mind. But, um, you know, now we see other organisations and entities start to refer to it. And I genuinely think it was a white paper I did maybe 10 years ago that kicked off that terminology of discussion, or at least I'll claim it all the same until somebody can prove otherwise. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think it, it's a really different way of looking at things. And, and it's a way where you don't outsource um, your responsibilities to somebody else where you're not stuck with conflicts or conflicted lobbyists or private money. And um, it really fulfills the idea that we've got some really great civil society organisations. And, and if you can amplify their voice, we'll get some really good outcomes for the country that I've ran for parliament for and live in. So, you know, it kind of helps everyone um, at a big picture level if we get the right outcomes in place. Yeah, no, look, absolutely nailed it. So just thinking, you know, obviously um, Tank's got its own philosophy and Angus has got his way of working, but just really curious about your way of thinking and working and the philosophy that you bring to working with clients at Tank. So I think my philosophy around this space comes from having ran as a candidate or run as a as a um, um, potential member of parliament had I won and also heavily in the campaigning space. So I'd been the national co-chair of Rainbow Labor for six or seven years. I'd done some work with the Democrats in the US around their LGBTI policies. And so for me, the very pointy end of campaigning and, and politics is where I contribute and lead a bit more. Angus and the rest of the team, obviously more on sort of, we've got a psychologist in-house and the political operations and policy framing and research but definitely the more pointy political and campaigning side is probably where I enjoy it most. And, um, you know, it's really good to work with a few clients who genuinely know how much effort it is to shift the dial on these issues and have longer term horizons in which we can shift the dial with them on. So, you know, one, two, three year campaigns to really make a difference in a certain area. And you're also tasked with the one to be the provocative, high-value question-asking responsibilities. Is that about right? Whereas Angus might be a bit more diplomatic in his approach. 
Yeah, look, I think the interesting side of it there, so Angus is is sort of the executive director and he obviously looks after a lot of the day-to-day um, side of things. I get to be much more of the provocateur or sort of the challenging person or to push people and and sort of really poke and prod to get them aligned on their political journey, really, and, and to aspire for things differently. Um, Angus is definitely the good cop if I'm the bad cop and, <laughs> and you know, you need both of those, I think, on times with clients and and you also need the, just the difference of perspective. Um, we would have never got to where we are had it not been a partnership. And I think there's something really interesting over than that. You know, often we idolise sort of one person for founding a business or starting a business or whatever the case may be. Um, the older I get and the more I get involved in this field, the more that I realise it's actually two or three people and a first follower and others who really make the biggest difference in that space. Um, so I definitely wouldn't have had it any other way uh, apart from, you know, founding it with someone who is complementary and and has a yin and a yang and 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 you have that balance between you. Talk to me about the inherent um, value of asking good questions as opposed to just talking a lot because I think, you know, my uh, theory or philosophy has been that, um, and maybe this just comes from active listening and podcasting more than anything, but asking the right questions might be far more important than delivering advice a lot of the time uh, off the bat. Just want to get your reflections on that. No, I definitely agree in that space, and particularly in an area where we are trying to build the capacity and capability of the sector around their ability to engage politically on funding, advocacy, other bits and pieces like that. It is questions that nudge the dial, and people are much more willing to reassess if you ask impactful questions, um, you know. It's one thing telling somebody they're X or telling them they should do Y. It's another thing getting them to think for themselves why that's important or or what's important over that space. So it is a really interesting mix. And I think asking challenging questions is part of that. With that said, we've probably lost a few clients over the years who don't necessarily like to be challenged. And I think that's sort of the flip side of that um, is sometimes you get to work with people who, who think they are... Um, know much more about the space than perhaps they do or that they've got something to prove. And I think, you know, being able to ride through some of those challenging questions is is a really good way to get everyone on the same page. And it's interesting how sometimes um, that's a good screen in or screen out for clients. Like, do, do, are they the clients that you actually want to have? I mean, presumably, if a client, a tank, can't be asked the hard questions, they're probably not a tank client. And and I think that's a really good way of putting it, you know, um, I think 99% of our clients I genuinely think are amazing, but, you know, there's always one or two across a cycle where you're like, I'm not sure you're listening to what we're saying or engaging with the process anyway. And um, while they happen few and far between, um, you know, we joke as a team that there's always one or two that's a little bit challenging and everybody else is is really passionate and gets really great outcomes. And yeah, it's it's an interesting mix, but I think it is a very good filter to your point, Mike, that, you know, those who don't necessarily appreciate that side of things are perhaps not necessarily the long-term clients you want as well. Yeah, no, well well said. And um, so you actually do a whole lot of things beyond Tank. Um, I, you know, I've got in my notes here from, from the lovely Emma about how energetic you are. You've got this massive sub- suburban food garden, two energetic Italian greyhounds. But I noticed you've also got some interesting uh, other things you do outside Tank, sustainability, Vic, uh, a non-executive director role, and you're doing some great things in other places too. Do you, want, do you want to just talk to me about the value of doing many things to help you be better at your jobs and uh, your job? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting one. So I sort of, um, sort of, if it was a Venn diagram, there'd be a number of over- overlapping components to it. So 
Um, I'm obviously co-founder and director of Tank, where I spend um, time each week. I also work in-house um, with a really great organisation that I have worked for on and off for um, pretty much since an inception. That's another FYA introduction. So um, I'm in-house as an employee at a, a big disability service provider called HireUp, which is doing really great things in Australia and doing things really differently. Uh, and that was founded by Laura and Jordan O'Reilly, who were both, or Jordan was an ex-YSP. So that's actually where Jordan and I met through the YSP Young Social Pioneers program at FYA. Um, and so they're kind of the work hats. And then I'm on sort of a weird and random assortment of boards. So uh, I've been on the board of Sustainability Victoria, which is the Victorian government statutory authority around zero net waste and zero net carbon. And I'm really interested in that space sort of intellectually around climate change and climate mitigation and, and what we can do around that area. Um, I've also been for the past two years, the chair of the Climate Action Network Australia, which is the peak body of the climate movements in Australia. Um, and while I'll be finishing up with them sort of later this year, um, it's been a really interesting opportunity to sort of attend COP and the climate change summits and, and sort of see the civil society play in that space. Um, I'm on Thorn Harbour, the board of Thorn Harbour Health, which is the former um, Victorian AIDS Council Gay Men's Health Service in Victoria and South Australia, um, and I've really enjoyed that. And then sort of had a motley collection of, of sort of other boards and, and opportunities over my time as well. And then sort of outside of work and boards is... I, I do have a little bit of land out in Kyneton and I have a bit of a market garden, not that it's grown for anything other than giving away to friends and family. Um, there's definitely not any um, remuneration in it, but um, it's a very enjoyable place to sort of start a garden. And um, my family are all farmers originally. So um, my cousins and auntie and uncles previously had citrus and grape farms, obviously Italian sort of wog background of citrus and grape as you do in Griffith, New South Wales. And my sister's on a cattle farm uh, on the New South Wales far south coast. And so I've only got a toy farm um, because I've only got a few acres, but um, I really enjoy sort of pottering and gardening and growing plants. Um, and the season at the moment is broccoli and peas are just coming up, but we've got plenty of fennel as well. And then that between um, two dogs, a partner, and and I'm learning to fly for whatever weird reason uh, as sort of an intellectual challenge at the moment as well. But um, busy people find time and mm. all of those sort of things come together because the space in Australia is sometimes small and, and sort of whether it's networks and connections or understanding uh, or even calibration of interests and the skills you pick up on boards are transferable to workplaces and vice versa. Um, so there's nothing I do that conflicts with another, but all of them, I think, are very complementary. Yeah, lo love that. Love that philosophy. It's always, always been my philosophy. And I think you find the right people through the convergence of uh, spaces where mutual interests are sort of, um, you know, converge. And I've always seen that sort of thing as complementary. And I think uh, from my experience, yeah, the busier you get, um, the more you can do, but also the more uh, your interests actually help you be better at whatever you're doing um, in a separate field of work. Uh, on a side note, we've also had um, higher up on the podcast fairly recently too, one of the members of their team. So great to hear that the story continues. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. I um, I jokingly say I've never had a career trajectory. I've never envisaged my next job or my next project or my next activity. But what I was fortunate enough to do I think when I was 15 or 16, I went to the US and did some student leadership course over there. You know, there were 20 Australians that all went to the US. And, and 
Australians struggle sometimes in America because Americans are a little bit rah-rah, like, you know, you can be the next president and you will be amazing and you will be the next CEO. Um, and so I think there was a bit of a reaction to that, but um, it was a very valuable opportunity because they sit you down at the end of this course and they're like, okay, what's your sort of 10, 20, 50-year goals? And most people can sort of populate those pretty easily. But then they go, well, what are the three things that you can only tick off the moment before you die? And everybody's kind of quiet for a second. They're like, yeah, you might die next week. You might die in a year. You might live to 100. But in that microsecond before you die, what are the few things that you can tick off? And, you know, they spend a good night working with you on these. And I think mine at the time, which they haven't shifted since. So, you know, I'm turned 40 next year. So this is 25 years later. But, you know, to be the best I can be, to leave a good legacy and to always push boundaries. And I think those three values have been a calibration of every opportunity, every job, anything that crosses my desk. Do they align to those three things? If yes, I'll do it. If no, leave that opportunity to aside. And I think in an era where you don't have linear career trajectories anymore, I think it's been a really good approach to sort of hone and anchor the difference of trajectories and projects that that you have underway. Oh, that's so well said. You've nailed that. Coming back to Tank uh, briefly, do you have some favourite clients that you've worked with or favourite client stories that you want to share? Um, there's always a few interesting clients that we get to work with. Now, most of our clients, we kind of don't share names or details or other bits and pieces. We kind of let their story speak for themselves. But there's a couple of really interesting ones who have given us permission to talk about sort of the work that we've done with them and sort of the projects that we've been involved in. Um, probably one of the most long-term ones was um, we worked for Olivia Newton-John and, and her family in the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Institute and Cancer Wellness Centre um, for a long time. I think I had worked with Olivia personally for coming up to 10 years, I think, um, helping them with their sort of government engagement, campaigning and advocacy. And that was really interesting because her personal passions were around um, cancer wellness, cancer research, as well as things like medicinal cannabis. And sort of seeing some of the wins in that space, whether they'd be sort of political attendance at um, her events and walks and runs, whether it be sort of two or three trips through Canberra or state parliament and, and just engaging and raising the profile of political leaders through to sort of securing funding and and campaigns for key and interesting projects in that area. Um, and that would definitely be one of the highlights. Um, I was very fortunate to obviously be able to help the family last year with the state memorial service, which um, while sad was kind of an interesting reflection for what had been achieved in in her life and, and her contributions beyond obviously her uh, career in performing arts. And that's sort of definitely one that sticks to mind. And then the second one is we've had a great relationship and worked with a long period of time um, with the Amy Gillett Foundation, um, which is all about cycle safety. And that's another client who I really enjoy, mainly because since I've moved out to the country, I've actually been very hesitant to ride my bike on country roads. Um, and I used to ride quite a bit in the city. And, and you know, so there's a personal connection in that regard as well. But also the story of Amy Gillett and her family and what they're trying to do and shifting the dial on cycle safety and and for someone like me who um, adores and probably spent way too much time travelling to the Scandinavian countries as well, I think the sense of um, cycling as a safe, uh, environmentally sound, you know, next step of, of how we can shift the dial on not just climate but obesity and, and a whole heap of other issues is a really interesting one. So they're definitely two that kind of stick out is, is sort of, although very opposite, cycling safety and, and cancer research and wellness, um, as well as medicinal cannabis. But yeah, really interesting types of clients we get to work with and um, have have been very fortunate to be able to have done so for, for such a long period of time. 
And so your life wasn't challenging enough uh, working with these fantastic clients and doing everything else you did. Talk to me about the pilot uh, experience, becoming a pilot and training to do that. And um, excuse the pun, but what new perspectives has that offered you on everything else you do? Uh, so, look, it was an interesting one. Um, so I, um, my mum unfortunately passed away uh, at a relatively young age a few years back uh, from motor neurons disease. And so, um, and I've always been an active traveller and always been interested in stuff. But um, obviously, for those who know, motor neurons disease is kind of a fairly quick but degenerative illness. Most people die usually around the 12-month mark after diagnosis. And and I think through that process, mum was always like, well, just do stuff, just try stuff. Like, you know, because she had retired, she just retired. She had a long list of things she was going to do. Um, and then she promptly got very unwell. I, I don't blame her, obviously, for it. But, you know, she got unwell and, and she wasn't able to finish her long list of projects that she wanted to do in retirement. And so that kind of kickstarted a new impetus of like, everything I've ever wanted to do before in my retirement, I'm now going to start doing now. So, you know, travel to overdrive, um, learn to sail, which I've done. And then one of them was like, I'd just be really interested in learning something that's completely unrelated to work. And so I started going through and getting my pilot's license. So I'm probably about halfway through now uh, for my private pilot's license. Um, I'm still flying with an instructor, but I can take off and land and uh, circuit train and all those other bits and pieces. And I do it at my local air club out in Kyneton, and they're a great crew out there. Um, and the chief instructor is a lovely guy called Mike who's been flying for almost all of his life. But flying for me has been really good because you have to concentrate on what you're doing, but you don't have to concentrate so much that it hurts. So it's one of these opportunities where you have to clear your head because you have to be present and you have to be in the moment, but it doesn't, you know, it's not intellectually, oh, my God, is this going to go wrong? Like you're kind of just present um, and it's a really good degree of present. And I enjoyed it. I did physics at school a long time ago and then took nothing from it or didn't even venture into that field. And so it's nice to be able to bring that back. But I think the biggest lesson I've learned while still learning to fly is um, just the sense of how small and insignificant we are, particularly when you're like a couple of kilometres up there's you and an instructor in a plane and there's not much between you and the earth except for a whole heap of air kind of thing. You're like, okay, we are very small on this planet. Um, and so that's why I took up flying, um, which was a really interesting um, adventure, but it was, it was a bucket list item that I wanted to do sooner rather than later. And then the other weird thing that I did this year of a similar genre was um, I went to Antarctica and spent four weeks in Antarctica um, in March this year. So they were kind of, you know, projects that I'd considered for my retirement, but uh, I brought them forward uh, to make sure I could could do them while I'm still around, really. So I, I, it's not intended to be morbid, but I suppose I just reflect that, you know, life is short and you've got to jump at those opportunities at every chance. No, I love that. There's so much to to take away from that. But I think the idea of understanding uh, in the greater scheme and scale of things how small we are and how you know we we in a way are significant but we're still just a tiny speck compared to everything else that's going on plus the art of doing something which totally engages you in a mindful way and enables you to be totally present certainly things that i hold dear as well so commend you on that and wish you all the best with your um pilot training now um with the lessons coming up yeah absolutely 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, look, you've said that you're always keen to have a virtual or in-person coffee, and, and maybe you'd consider having a coffee with, with someone in a plane as well. I don't know whether that's an option. You could take them up for a little flight when you're ready and have a little <laughs> chit-chat in, in, <laughs> on deck. But uh, how can people get in touch with you and uh, have either an on-ground or aerial coffee and learn more about you and your amazing work at Tank? Yeah, so look, the best way is um, shoot me an email. Um, it can be neil, N-E-I-L, at tank, T-A-N-C-K.com.au, or my personal one, which is just neil at neilfero.com.au. Um, or LinkedIn is probably the easiest way um, to connect in that sort of space as well. Uh, as I said, most happy to jump on board, and and I think sharing opportunities and challenges and time and and things like that is a really great way to to get others thinking in that that path as well so um yeah most happy to jump out for a virtual coffee um i think friends get more time with me if they're willing to do weeding in the garden as a general hint so you know driving out to Clayton <laughs> and pulling weeds for a couple of hours is is a good cathartic way to spend a few hours um but no i'm often in sydney and melbourne um for work which is really really good and and do bounce around as well and and really pleased to be able to be on here and also sort of take any questions or queries um for people interested in this space Mate, thanks so much for being with me today. I'm sure you get plenty of people coming up to do some uh, hard labor on the farm and possibly get a coffee in return and maybe a flight even. Who knows? Uh, hang on the line and we'll have a quick debrief. No problems. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.